Now this weekend, Greg is actually on vacation. Greg and Shelly, they went together uh, to Vegas. And um, I don't know what's going on. I hear that what happens there stays there. So that's what I'm hoping for. Um, <laughs> so he's getting a nice vacation. And that's great. He and Shelly together. And so we have a guest speaker with us. And I am really excited about our guest for today. His name is Abe Johnson. He is a pastor in Richfield. He is um, just a really excellent speaker. Has a great word for us today. So, And he also, um, when he was at Bethel Seminary, he came here. So he's one of our own. He's a Woodland Hills guy. So would you guys please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Abe. Hey, thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's, uh, it's good to be back. Um, it's great to be back. And uh, Podrishioners as well. I should give them a shout out since I am a Podrishioner now, being a little bit farther away. Actually, Northfield, not Richfield. So sorry uh, if all you Richfielders and Northfielders were offended um, by that. Uh, my wife and I, like it was said, we attended Woodland for four years while we were in St. Paul. God has brought us to different places. Now we're in Northfield. My wife teaches. I'm a, a family pastor there. We have three daughters, three girls. Emily, yeah, uh, Emily is four. Kate is two. And Anna, little Anna Rose is six months. And I barely know what I'm doing. And it's just great. <laughs> It's exactly the way uh, it should be, you know. If you're ever down in Northfield, you should come, come uh, stop on by Emmaus Baptist Church. We'd love to have you. Give you a handshake and a donut, maybe, um, if we have donuts. I know what can happen if donuts are promised and you do not get one. My girls, uh, you know, can tell you about that. We really look back at our time here with a lot of fondness. We really got a real sense of the kingdom here. The kingdom, Jesus' kingdom dreams, they take deep roots here. What it really means to follow Jesus and to shape your life around that. Uh, shape your work, your budget, your calendar for Jesus' kingdom. And we got bit by that bug when we were, we were here. And I blame all of you. I blame all of you for that. So thank you. Thank you so much. I've titled the sermon this morning, Widows in the Kingdom, and we're going to take a little bit of a journey looking at a widow or two that we find in the Bible and, and what the, those particular Bible passages might be saying to us today, particularly Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to park for a while. Jesus and his disciples have made their way to Jerusalem, and they're in the temple, so we're going to be there. Before we read that text However, let us pray. Let's pray and ask once again for God's Spirit to be here. God in heaven, we ask for your Spirit to speak to us, please. Without your Spirit, God, we cannot, we just can't hear you. Give us what you know we need today. If it's a conviction, give us a conviction. If we need empowerment, empower us, Lord. God, by your Spirit, if, if we need um, a correction, correct us. Encouragement, encourage, encourage us. Freedom, free us. More than all those things. Uh, God, we, we ask for Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus would be with us. Our Lord and our Redeemer. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So here's the, the text. 
that we're going to read here, that I'm going to read here for us. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 to 44. Jesus is in the temple. Then Jesus sat down opposite the offering box. He's in the treasury. And watched the crowd putting coins into it. Many rich people were throwing in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples. He said to them, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the offering box than all the others. For they all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Everything she had. Jesus is in the the treasury. He's sitting opposite the treasury. He sees this widow come in, drop in a couple of lepta, a couple of little coins worth a penny. And that scene is so overwhelming to him that he calls his disciples to himself. He has something to communicate to them. James, John, come here. Peter, come over here. Do you see her? Do you see this woman? And here's my question. What is Jesus trying to communicate? Is Jesus trying to tell his disciples, this is exactly how giving should happen in the kingdom? Or is Jesus communicating something much different than that? I want to offer to us this morning some, uh, an understanding of this passage that is different. I'm going to offer that what Jesus is, is doing here is not pointing out uh, the way giving should happen. And maybe this woman had a, a heart of, of, of giving. Maybe she believed God would, would supply her every need. Self-sacrificial giving, clearly a value in Jesus' kingdom. But what I want to offer is that the reason Jesus called the disciples to himself is to point out injustice. What is happening breaks the heart of God. Here's a widow in the very house of God where she should be at least given a name, given some respect, her needs taken care of. She has no name and she gives everything. She's got nothing left. And I want to offer that that is something Jesus points out to his disciples, a system of sin that is occurring in the temple. (laughs) Someone's excited this morning. This doesn't happen at Emmaus Baptist Church. Let me just say that much. So, I didn't, uh, hopefully, no one in my church is watching this right now. Uh, (laughs) So, I want to give a few reasons why I think this is the case. So, you're reading the Bible, you read a story, and you read a little snippet, kind of like what we just did, and you're wondering, it can be, it might not tell the whole story. There might be more going on here, right? So, so back up, read a little bit before it, keep on going once you've read it, uh, read a little bit more, and, and maybe that'll flesh it out. This doesn't tell the whole story. It's kind of like what happens when you're at home, you're watching a movie, you're like an hour into the movie, it's going great, you're into it, and your dopey brother walks in, now he wants to watch the movie too. This ever happened to you? Has all kinds of questions, and obnoxious. Why is she crying? Whose dog is that? What's an Oompa Loompa? You know. Get, just get out of here. Just watch the movie tomorrow. Jeez. This doesn't always tell the whole story. So let's back up. If we back up, here's what we get. 
Right before the widow, uh, this is what Jesus is, is saying. In his teaching, Jesus also said, Watch out for the experts in the law. They like walking around in long robes and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' property. And as a show, make long prayers. These men will receive a greater punishment. So Jesus tells his disciples, look out for the scribes, the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, they knew the law of Moses. They really did. They knew the thing up and down and back and and left and right and upside down and inside out and all of that. We have evidence that suggests that that experts of the law, the scribes of Jesus' day, were memorizing the book of Leviticus at the age of five. I'm sure those were some very riveting family devotions there in the book of Leviticus. You could walk up to a scribe, you could say, hey, scribe, 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 I got a question. I, was, I know it's in the Bible, I just I can't remember where. Where is it in the Bible, that part about the priest giving an offering and, and how to take the fat off of the, off of the entrails? And the part about the liver and the sinews and the, and the protruding lobe of the liver? Where is that? Where, where is that? I can tell you all want to know too. You know. And a scribe would look at you and a scribe would say to you without hesitation, that's in the book of Leviticus, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, five-year-old stuff, right? <laughs> they wouldn't give you chapter and verse because those hadn't come around yet, but I think you, you get the point. The teachers of the law, they knew the Bible. They knew the law of Moses. They were the teachers. They went around telling people how they should be living their life, what God expected from them. They were incredibly educated, most educated men of the day. They held amazing amount of influence in the religious life of the entire country, very well respected. And Jesus says, watch out for them. Look out. The problem wasn't that they were educated. Uh, the problem wasn't that they knew the Bible. That's a good thing. The problem wasn't that they had influence. Influence isn't always bad. The problem was the hearts. The problem was their hearts. They, they weren't in this to help people. They were in this to help themselves. They were in this for long robes and, and seats of honor. They were in this to be pampered and lauded and, and respected. And that is not what this whole thing is about. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. They weren't in it to help people. You know, there are people, there are people, the more Bible they memorize, the more Bible they know, the more judgmental they become. And Jesus says, look out. Look out for that, okay? But then Jesus goes on and he says, they devour the property of widows. Did you catch that? I mean, they're stealing from people who are vulnerable. Jesus no sooner gets done saying that than he marches his disciples right down to the treasury and shows them a real-life example of what he was talking about. Look at her, he says. Scribes are doing a number on her. That's what happens when we back up. Read our story. What happens when we we keep going? Immediately after the widow's story, the the disciples and Jesus are, are walking out of the temple. And as they are exiting the temple, Mark chapter 13, verse 1, The disciples, they turn around and they say, Rabbi, teacher, look at this building. It's amazing. Wow, it's impressive. 
the temple. And it was. Herod built it. It took years for uh, it to be completed, and it was an impressive structure. The historian Josephus tells us that there was so much gold on this building that when the sun rose up in the morning, if you looked at the temple, it would burn your eyes. It's impressive. Which is why what Jesus says next, I think, was a bit shocking for the disciples. There they are gawking at the temple, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone of these buildings will be remaining on top of another. It's going to be destroyed. It's a corrupt system, a system of, of, of sin. And God is going to judge it, and it will be toppled down. <laughs> Whoa. Whatever people thought of Jesus... Whatever people thought of Jesus when he walked around in his ministry, almost everyone agreed the man was a prophet. He acted like a prophet. He talked like a prophet. He, taught, he, uh, he quoted the, the Bible like a prophet. And one of Jesus' most profound prophecies that he ever gave was that the temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. It gets this, the, the disciples when it, say, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And this is what Jesus tells them, Mark chapter 13. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. Not, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. He's talking about the temple. One generation, he said. In the minds of those of Jesus' day, that's 40 years. 35 years later, roughly, the Roman uh, legion descended on Jerusalem and tore the temple apart. Jesus was right. He was right. We've got, a te- we've got teachings about the scribes and what they do. We have an example of how they're doing it. And then we, th- there's the rationale for why the temple is going to be judged by God. There's your uh, context of this, of this story. It makes a little more sense that Jesus is lamenting here. He's pointing something out that is not right. And he wants to impress that upon his disciples. There's more to it, I think. Another reason I don't think Jesus is praising uh, the actions, although she may have, again, she may have done it uh, with a heart of of gratitude and wanting to be self-sacrificial, but that's not Jesus' point. And another reason I think that is he never actually praises the woman's actions. He never says to his disciples, you know, come around here. He never says, uh, go and do likewise. He, he, he never says, this is good. He never says, look at this great faith. Nothing like that. We infer it. The thing is, though, is when Jesus wants to impress something on his followers, he will commend amazing acts of faith. He says of the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter gets healed, he says to his disciples, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. He, he, he says of the woman who breaks the jar and pours the oil on his head, he says, she has done a good thing for me. When he heals people, when he casts demons out of people, he will say, your faith has made you well, to impress it on his disciples. But, but here, he doesn't say that. He points out this woman to his disciples. And I, I don't think he's raising up this situation, this tragic situation, as though this is how giving should happen in the church. A widow giving everything she's got till she has nothing left to live on. A third reason uh, I think this is a better reading is it, it, gives, um, it makes more sense in the broader context of Mark chapters 11, 12, 
and 13. I know I alluded, alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, the temple and how God felt about it. But let me flesh this out a, a little bit more. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus gets on a donkey. Many of us know this story, Palm Sunday. He gets on this donkey and he's going to ride into Jerusalem. And as he's going through the gates of Jerusalem, all these people come with their palm trees, <clears throat> palm branches. That would have been sight, you know. Yay! <laughs> The donkey's jumping over. Palm branches. Sorry. They come with their palm branches and they lay the palm branches at the feet of the donkey. The donkey rides it and they scream out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're welcoming their king into the city of kings. This is our king, they're saying. Palm Sunday kind of stuff. We, we kind of review this scene every year. <clears throat> What, what, what we don't, uh, what we often don't catch though, is what Jesus does immediately after he gets off the donkey. Incredible reception. Jesus gets off the donkey and he walks right to the temple. And Mark says that Jesus looked around at everything. This is an inspection. This is an inspection of the house of God by the one who embodies God. It gives me goosebumps. The one true great God who put stars in the sky with a word. The great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Sarah and Rebekah and Leah and Rachel. The God who heard the cries of enslaved people, ripped them out of the hands of Pharaoh, pushed them through the sea of reeds, brought them into a good promised land of milk and honey where they could worship their God. The God who shook the foundations of the tabernacle, filled the temple with his glory. There he stands, right there. Come to his house. And what Jesus sees bothers him so deeply, troubles him so much, makes him so angry and saddened that he starts doing things. The disciples, uh, they thought that he was crazy. Uh, they must have a second thought, why did I decide to follow this guy again? He's doing things that aren't making any sense. He's walking up to fig trees out on the hills, right? Curse you fig tree, kills the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit. It's not even fruit season, right? He walks into the temple and he starts throwing tables and coins all over the place, making whips, driving the cattle out of the temple. He is going toe to toe with the most educated, elite, best teachers in the entire nation. He's not holding back anymore. Toe-to-toe with him in the temple. And oh my goodness, he's making them look foolish. He stands in the middle of the temple teaching the, the Torah of God to his people as though he is the Messiah of God. Mark chapters 11, 12, and 13, and there's more in there, is just one reason after another exposing the, the, the evil practices in the temple indicting it and showing why God is going to topple it to the ground. And if that's what Mark chapters 11, 12, and 13 are about, doesn't it make sense that this story about the widow is functioning in exactly the same way? Furthermore, Jesus taught, and this is so important for us to really capture when we, whenever we handle the, the sacred texts, the Bible, 
Jesus consistently taught that human need trumps and is more important than religious obligation. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't know uh, which to give to, the, the choice should be clear, Jesus said. You, 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 you attend to human need. Uh, before, before religious obligation. We can see this, for example, in Jesus' teaching on the, about Sabbath. People weren't made for Sabbath. Sabbath's made for people. And if someone needs a healing, even if it's Sabbath, you heal them. My goodness, he says, if a donk, an oxen falls into a pit, you'd bring it out on Sabbath. And if people who, who, who don't have means, if they need to glean food on the edge of fields, even if it's Sabbath, they should do that, just like his own disciples did. And they got into a little bit of trouble for doing so. Good thing Jesus was with them and just, you know, with the, the teachers of the law. We even see this in his teachings on uh, this idea of korban. This is in uh, Mark 7, uh, Matthew 15. This idea of korban, that you, you could take a part of your income, dedicate it to the temple, you know, automatic withdrawal or something, going right to the temple. And uh, if it's a korban sacrifice, the scribes taught you could not get that back. It's dedicated to the, the, the temple, the place where God has put his name, right? Can't get it back. Fine, fine enough. But what happens if, say, you have aging parents and you need to help them and you need some funds freed up to do that because the law of Moses says to honor your father and your mother. And the scribes were teaching this. They were teaching, look, as long as you gave that to the temple as korban, God doesn't expect you to free up funds to help your parents. You can immediately see the trouble Jesus has with this kind of teaching. It's like you take an eraser right to the scriptures and the law of Moses and just erasing it right out of there. You nullify the word of God. If your parents need help, you should help them. Human need trumps religious obligation. And, and here's a woman who has great need. And she's been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees, that her, relig her religious obligation comes first. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he clashes with them. He wants to expose this hurtful and harmful teaching that is perpetuating these harmful things in her life. They've conditioned her to do this. And it's, it's wrong-headed and it's not right and it's not from God. And Jesus points it out to his disciples. <coughs> You know, it's, it's as if Jesus, it's as if he brought the disciples to himself and said, don't you ever let this happen in my church. And to the best of their ability, the disciples didn't. The New Testament is littered with teachings and examples about how the early uh, leaders of the church and the early Christian communities made it one of their hallmarks to stand up for and give respect to and names to widows. We see this in Acts chapter 6 uh, where the, 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 the community is together. They're distributing goods and food to people and some widows are being neglected. So there are those in the church that rise up and give voice to this and they take care of it. Uh, we see this in, in, in James chapter 1 where James says, you want to know what true religion is? I'll tell you. True religion, don't be corrupted by the world and take care of orphans and widows. Uh, this was a hallmark of theirs. We can see this in 1 Timothy, where an entire chapter and more is given to the practical uh, care and how that will happen in the church of widows. The early church made this a very important part of what they did. 
I mean, it's almost as if uh, those who were with Jesus in the treasury that day never forgot the quiver in his voice as he spoke those words or or the, the flicker of anger in his eyes as he said it. I think that that moment had tremendous impact on the disciples and it stuck with them for years to come. And so many of us in this room right now, we've had moments like that too, haven't we? Whether it's a gentle whisper of God's Spirit or whether the Holy Spirit grabs us by the scruff of the neck on some trip or some case we're working or someone that we met, and Jesus just speaks right to our hearts. And he said, Mike, and he says, My kingdom dream for the world, and my kingdom dream for you intersects right here. I want you to stand up for this or stand against this. And so many of you are doing this. And you should be commended. There are, there are sinful and, and hurtful systems out there in our world, in our country. They're there, and they're hurting people. And God is asking His people to stand up and rise up and stand against it. Yes, amen. So, go and, and do that. Okay? I don't really know how else to say that part. <laughs> Just do it. There is one other thing I want to... Um, one, well, one other observation I want to make about this, this little scene uh, with Jesus and the widow and his disciples. It's kind of an obvious one, I suppose, but I think it's so profound and so important because it, it meets us in, in very um, deep places. And that is this. Jesus lamented. He lamented. He, he, there were times when anger and sorrow were needed to give, uh, they needed voice. And he needed to say it. Times when, when you see something in the world or, or something happens in your own life, and you can't be silent. You need to speak the lament, the anguish and the pain. Jesus passionately grieved the situation this woman, of this woman. And, and our Scriptures, time and again, encourage us to do the same thing. To grieve and to mourn the tragic and heartbreaking things that happen in our lives. Jesus is no stranger to our pain. I think of the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms in the Bible. Almost half of them, half, contain lament. They, they contain the, these, these statements that almost seem unfaithful, uh, where, where there's pain and anguish that just get expressed to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, have you forgotten your covenant? God, am I not yours anymore? God, why why, why do you hide your face from me? Do you not hear my cry? These are the prayers of the faithful. Oddly enough, this is a point that comes from a writer named Walter Brueggemann. Oddly enough, when we run across these things in the Bible, in the Psalms, we continue to read on, something strange seems to happen to the person in prayer. 
the mood changes. When, when they're able to unleash the venom, the sorrow and the anguish and the pain, and throw it before God, the whole mood changes and they come to a place of like salvation and healing and even trust. Because the person in prayer is confident that the Almighty has heard their cry. The Psalm, the book of Psalms, is actually five books. Did you know that? It's actually five books. There are five prayer books in our Bible, five. And every single one of them, all five books, ends with a psalm, a hallelujah psalm. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah in English. Praise the Lord. All five books end that way. Except for the last book, the fifth book. One was not enough. The last book of Psalms ends with four hallelujah psalms. Boom, 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 boom. Like the grand finale of a fireworks show. Bombarded with praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Sometimes it seems a little odd to me that a book, the Psalms, all five of them, with so much hurt and lament and pain, ends in a hallelujah. The first, book, the first half of the book of Psalms, the first half, first two and a half books, it's, it's almost all lament. Almost all of it. Complaint. Anguish. Praises do burst out here and there, but they're short-lived. They are. But as the book goes on, sorrow gives way to praise. Until at the end, all that remains is a whole plethora of hallelujahs. And I, I love the way writer Eugene Peterson puts this, and I want to actually just read this for you. This word of praise is not slapped on to whatever mess we're in at the moment. Some Pollyanna praise God. No, this is a crafted conclusion, and it tells us that our prayers our prayers, a life of prayer, will end in praise. But it also tells us that it may <clears throat> that it might take a while. So don't rush it. It might take years, even decades, before certain prayers of ours arrive at hallelujah. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the book of Psalms is any guide, are not. But prayer, a praying life, will eventually become praise. Prayer is always reaching towards praise. And it will finally arrive there. If we persist in prayer, if we approach the, the Almighty and we laugh and then we cry and we dance and we mourn, we doubt and believe and doubt again, throwing all of our joy and our pain and our hope and lament into the throne room of God, we will end up at Psalm 150 on our feet in applause, yelling, Encore! Encore! Reminds me of the women of Bethlehem. You might know about the women of Bethlehem. Uh, Naomi, she lives in Bethlehem. and Her story comes to us in the book of Ruth. And Naomi's name, and this is important, Naomi's name means happy, pleasant. Naomi, she's a sweetie. And Naomi gets married and Naomi and her husband have two little boys. Life is sweet. It's good. 
and then calamity hits and the economy goes south and they all have to find a new, a new place to live and start all over. And so they move to a foreign land where they're sojourners. And it's in that foreign land, the Bible tells us, that Naomi loses her husband. He, he died. And the Bible says at that point that Naomi was left all alone with her two boys. She raises them up, and, and then they get married, and calamity hits again, and both of her boys die. And the Bible says at that point, Naomi was all alone. And so Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem to start all over once again. So she, she takes that road back to Bethlehem, that long road. And the Bible tells us that as she's approaching her hometown, must have been decades, and she's getting there, and all the women of Bethlehem come running out. And the screen doors slam, and they're running out. They're all in a flutter. Can it be? Is it you? Can it be? Is it you, Naomi? Oh, happy one? And Naomi... She snaps. She snaps at it. Snaps at those women and she says, she says, Alta kreina li no omi, kreina li mara. Don't call me happy. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. It's pretty unlikely that Naomi uh, ever wrote any of the Psalms. But what she said there and what she says next, I think, would fit right next to these laments of David, right next to the laments of Jeremiah himself. She says, The Almighty has afflicted me. I when I left, my life was full and and I've got brought back with nothing. <clears throat> God has been harsh to me, and, and God has afflicted me. You know, Naomi's just, she's just saying where she's at. She's not a theologian. She's not, she's not you know, trying to make these theologically correct statements. She's saying where she's at. She's lamenting. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? At first blush, you know, you hear these kinds of words and, 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 and you wonder, boy, is that, that a lack of faith right there? Uh, no trust in God? Is that doubt right there? Is that what that is? Quiet Christian piety sometimes views that kind of thing that way, but Israel did not. The people of Israel, time and again, you see it in their Scriptures. I mean... These kinds of, of protests, sometimes not just to God, but at God, they were kind of seen almost like an act of faithfulness because they came from a place anchored in a covenant relationship with God that said God has made some promises too. And he, he, he should hold up his end of the bargain. And this covenant relationship that, that said, God is big enough to absor absorb this, and I'm at God's mercy at this point, and He's my last hope. And, and if He doesn't do something, I'm going to be lost. And He's the one who can. 
These are the prayers of Israel. And the name Israel means, and this is important, Israel means one who struggles with and wrestles with God. And that is where Naomi was. That's where she was. Do you remember who was standing there next to Naomi that whole time? Naomi's just this raw blast of venom. Remember who was standing right there next to her? It was Ruth. God did not bring Naomi back empty-handed. God gave Naomi Ruth, ever-loyal, ever-loving Ruth. Her dead son's widow. Ruth who said, Naomi, I am your child, I am your daughter. We're going to do this together. And Naomi didn't see it. How could she see it? At a time and a place where widows had no legal rights, it was a future of, of complete uncertainty and, and, and almost a loss of hope. God was going to use a widow in Naomi's life to overturn her fortune. Because Ruth was going to marry again. And Ruth was going to have a baby. Ruth would have a baby. You know that? And when she has a baby, Naomi's going to be carrying that baby in her arms. Naomi's going to be right there holding the baby. And when she does... All the women of Bethlehem, they're going to run out, screen doors slamming, and they're all in a flutter as they surround Naomi and they pray a blessing on her. And they, the Scriptures tell us, they said in one voice, Naomi, praise the Lord. God has not left you without protection. He's given you this baby. And he's going to be famous in Israel. He's going to grow up, and as you get old, he's going to encourage you, and he's going to provide for you because your daughter-in-law, who loves you, she's better to you than seven sons. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I have two prayers uh, for for the church here today. Two prayers. God, those of us that You have gently or firmly brought to Your side and pointed out a widow in our life or somebody, and You've said, stand up. This is not right. And we're going to do something about this. Lord, for those of us who have had that moment, we ask for You to empower us with Your Spirit, strengthen our knees, strengthen our hearts. Um, strengthen this church. I know this church, Father, Woodland Hills Church, they've seen that and they are doing something and God empower them. My second prayer, Father, is for the, the person here who is in lament right now in life. Maybe they haven't given voice yet, but there's something. They're, they're churning and, 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 and they need a voice. And I ask that your spirit would groan in them uh, and give rise to what needs to be said to you that they might know that the Almighty hears them. That they might reach towards a, a hallelujah. I pray these things in the, the Almighty name of Jesus who saves us. Amen.
And now, Woodland, I invite you to stand. I want to pray a blessing on you and uh, invite the prayer ministers forward. Look, God might not, might not be done with you today. Uh, you might feel a nudge to come and pray uh, when, the, when the ministers find their spot. Come forward and pray. They'd love to pray with you, pray for you. Uh, I like the way it was said, give voice, intercede for you. So don't uh, be afraid to do that. So I'm on loan this morning from the good people of Emmaus Baptist Church in Northfield. They have a guest speaker too. <laughs> Uh, and I usually at this point I give them a blessing and I'd like to do that for you. This blessing comes from the book of Numbers. It's the blessing that the priest would give on the people after the priest came out of the holy place. Yeah. And this is a prayer that is still to this day prayed over children by parents. And so I want to pray this for you that this might be a blessing uh, in your life this day. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord shine His face upon you. May the Lord lift up His face and smile on your life. And may the Lord fill your life with peace and fullness. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you today.